If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrave and this is the third History Extra podcast for the month of April 2012. You're probably wondering what's coming up this week. Roman tombstones can be very loquacious. You know, they can they say things, hey, you know, oh, passerby, stop here and listen to me, because I'm dead, read this, I'm going to tell you about myself. That was Mary Beard on The Ordinary Folk of Ancient Rome. It's got better in the schools. When I started teaching um, more years ago than I care to admit, students would come up with an idea that history was facts, indisputable facts. And that was Richard Evans on The Teaching of History. Now, the podcast comes to you from the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. Details on our website, historyextra.com. We're also available digitally. You can purchase our Kindle edition from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available on the Apple newsstand. More information on the iPad edition is at historyextra.com slash iPad, and you can also find us on facebook.com slash historyextra or twitter.com slash historyextra. Mary Beard is Professor of Classics at Newnham College, Cambridge, and presenter of a new BBC Two series, Meet the Romans with Mary Beard. She's written a feature for the current issue of BBC History magazine about the perils of a night out in ancient Rome. I caught up with her at her office in Cambridge to ask her to give us an introduction to these Romans for the podcast. You're presenting a programme, a series, BBC series, uh, which is entitled Meet the Romans at the moment. That may change, but that's, that's the title line. And uh, it's the, the billing is you're introducing us to the ordinary Romans. So... Who is an ordinary Roman? Right, well, yeah, what we wanted to do was to say, look, um, when most people kind of close their eyes and think Rome, they see emperors, they see generals, they see kind of toffs in the forum, spouting oratory. We want to say, OK, who are the guys that make the whole thing run? You know, who are the ordinary people? And because it's always hard to define ordinary. <laughs> um, but we're trying to look at 
thought we're trying to look at the people that don't get into the history books, but who have brilliantly in Rome left traces and voices of themselves. So um, we're looking at people like the Empress Livia's hairdresser or uh, the guy who made his money out of doing purple dye and has got a big tombstone saying, oh, I was a purple dyer. Uh, one of our favourite guys who has quite a big bit in the, um, in the series is a baker, a man called Eurysikis, Virgilius Eurysikis, and he made it really big. He must have been an ex-slave, wouldn't know anything about him, but for his tombstone great tombstone in the shape of a bread oven um, uh, decorated with scenes of his bread making operation and we've got loads and loads of these guys who are still giving us little hints glimpses into their lives ordinary lives 2,000 years later largely from their tombstones. Roman tombstones can be very loquacious. You know, they, can, they say things, hey, you know, oh, passerby, stop here and listen to me, because I'm dead, read this, I'm going to tell you about myself. And so what we're doing is taking those, uh, people you'd never have heard of, but who make up the urban fabric of the city of Rome. You know, wonderful characters. They've got such a good sense of humour. I mean, Romans really like to laugh. <laughs> And so this is this is the sort of the whole span of Roman society, other than the, the very yeah. top. Yeah. So, not, so is this is this slaves or are these people who own slaves? Uh, we've got slaves. We've got ex-slaves. We've got slave owners, but not not the real. You know, we're not we're not at the top of the tree. I mean, in fact, I think you could pretty well say that, with one exception, and I'm not going to give away who it is, with one exception, nobody that we talk about, nobody that we make our characters. Uh, are known in Roman literature right. at all. Uh, and yet we haven't made it up. I mean, one of the things we were trying to do is to say, look, um, we're, you know, we're not going to pretend we know about people we don't. What we're going to do is say, what do they tell us about themselves? And say, largely on their tombstones. And some of them are slaves, some of them are ex-slaves, some of them are ex-slaves who've made it big, some haven't. Um, and... They're doing all kinds of things, from being kind of accountants or posh fashion merchants to humpers of stuff at the docks, sailors, guys who complain about the rent. It's great being dead, at least you don't have to pay the landlord, you know, rent's free in the underworld. <laughs> and, and tombstones are the best, best, uh, uh, best way into this. Yeah. Is, is it a source that's been much mined yeah. for, by, by, by historians and classicists? Tombstones are, in a funny way, the best way into it um, because it's where the ordinary people tell you about themselves. You know, they don't tell you about themselves in literature. They don't have literature. Um, you know, writers, Roman writers are all rich, even when they're pretending to be poor. You know, there's quite a lot of Roman writers who complain about how awful it is living in a garret. But, you know, it was, it was a bit... Um, they were more pretending to be impoverished than really impoverished. And where, where these people write about themselves is in death, on their tombstones. And you'd think that might be a bit gloomy. You know, you think, God, <laughs> a programme featuring loads of tombstones. But actually, there's such a spirit to them so, uh, that, you know, really, they kind of 
they exude stuff about the life of the person rather than the death, actually. And they, they capture images of real Romans that you don't get anywhere else at all. Oh, and we were only looking a couple of days ago at a great tombstone of a little girl. A little girl who died when she was five. And it turns out she's a bit of a tomboy. And it says, actually, my face looked a bit... I didn't really have a girly face. I had a face that looked a bit like a boy. And I had, I had red hair. And it was cut short on top, but I let it grow long at the back. And you suddenly think, gosh, you know, there's, there's an image of just an ordinary Roman child. Yeah. So what sort of sense do you get of what was on the, on the minds of these people then by looking at that? Can you, can you get a sense of, of what was troubling them, what they were thinking about? Well, partly it's jolly tough. You know, partly it, you see that life in Rome is a struggle. You know, these are people who are not living in marble palaces. They're living in, you know, one-room apartments in a garret. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, they haven't got an inside loo. They haven't got any space. Fires are everywhere. One little girl who died in a fire, you know, and you think, you know, it's, it's a tough life. And it, these, these monuments to these people, you know, in part commemorate that toughness. But in part, they commemorate a kind of unbatterable spirit. That's what, that's, I think, why they're not gloomy. Because they sometimes talk about the difficulties of life and you can see how tough it must have been for them. But they're kind of, these tombstones are kind of wonderfully cheeky and irreverent and taking you into bits of life that you wouldn't otherwise have thought. A wonderful tombstone of a, a, a load of people living in a ménage à trois. <laughs> and you know, suddenly you think, ah, you know, Roman, you know, Roman family arrangements are about as mixed up and messy and surprising as our own are. Yeah, but can we, do you, when you're looking at these things, do you get a sense of how different these people were from us? I mean, or were they actually quite similar to us? Where's where's the line? On that? Well, that's I think the line. That's that's the problematic line that we're always treading, you know, because. I think you have to say, look, in some ways they're completely different. In some ways they're living in a world that we would not recognise, um, whose assumptions about, you know, about how everything worked from, you know, how, how the human body worked was just completely different from ours. And yet they're saying things that we recognise. I think everybody recognises the idea, you know, at least when you're dead you don't have to pay the rent. And there's something about Rome which I think brings out that familiar, rather sort of urban style. That you know, Rome is the first place in the world to have a million people living. It's the first city of a million. You know, no city was as big as that to London in the 19th century. And it's, it's a very hustly, edgy, in-your-face kind of place, wherever you're living, honestly. I mean, maybe the, the toffs in their palazzi are unbothered by the hustle, but for most people, it's it's hustly, bustly, edgy, bit dangerous. Uh, everybody's kind of cheek by jowl up against one another, and there's a sense I think what we recognise in these sort of pretty feisty in your face kind of tombstones, and what they say on them, is that sort of that kind of urban that urbanity. You know, these aren't sort of 
sleepy old peasants on a farm. These are people who are living life in the fast lane. And, you know, they're jokey and they're taking the piss out of all sorts of things. They're joking about their bowel movements. And um, so there's a sort of recognisable urbanness about it. You, I mean, you sort of feel that the city of Rome in the ancient world, it must have been dangerous, but it must have been quite exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a cosmopolitan place. I mean, not only is it big, but, you know, your neighbours from Syria. Um, you, might, you might not know him to talk to, but everybody's from everywhere. Ah, now, so was there, was there a community spirit there? Because, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a question that everyone's talking about today, isn't there? There's always, you know, do we have a community spirit in Britain at all? What with all our, the different cultures around? So was, was there a community spirit? Did people know their neighbours? Did they get on with each other? Were they out, you know, looking out for each other? Or were they just, you know... It's always hard to know that. Trying to survive. It's always hard to know. But uh, there's a sense in which... I think there's got to be a community spirit. I mean, look, you're living in a city which doesn't have the kind of services, the safety nets that we have. You know, it ha- you know there isn't a there isn't a police police force. You know, <laughs> um, so what happens? What happens if someone comes and nicks your stuff? Well, you have to rely on your friends and neighbours, don't you? Um, now. But I guess is that for some people living in the city of Rome, like anybody living in a very big city. Uh, some of them must be kind of crushed by the anonymity. But you get people living in a tower block. Um, you know, my guess is quite a lot of them are looking out for each other. You know, what do you do when you're ill? Well, you know, you know either nothing and you put up with it on your own and nobody helps you, or there's a nice lady next door who says, try some of this, dear. It's always worked for me. <laughs> and so you... You don't feel, and this is where, again, we're quite reliant on the spirit of these tombstones. You, know, you feel there are people who are, are talking to the outside world in a way that expects the outside world to listen. And that's what, for me, suggests there is a community spirit. Yeah. You know, but if you put on your tombstone, hey, come on, stop listening to me. I'm dead. This is what I did. That suggests that you, to me that you think... You have got somebody who's going to listen to you. And that, 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 that there is, within this big city, um, some real pockets of community. That's how, people, that's how people must have survived. Not everybody did. Some people must have been dead lonely. Yeah. Um, well, there wasn't, I think, and this is quite interesting, in that <laughs> compared with our sort of cosmopolitan, multicultural cities, I, I don't think there was much sense of of kind of racial or ethnic quarters. You know, I don't think you'd go to Rome and say, um, oh, look, there's all the Egyptians sticking together. Oh, I see, right, yeah. Don't think you get that. Now, you know, if you fetch up in Rome from Egypt and you don't know anyone, you probably would look out for some other Egyptians. But the city, there isn't a Chinatown. In Rome, the city isn't isn't divided into recognisable ethnic areas. I think the communities are much more mixed than that. Right. Okay. So there would have been different languages flying around all over the place, and and, and different sorts of people doing different sorts of things. Must have been pretty polyglot. They must have been speaking lots of languages. Um, must have been a bit of a babel. What's funny is that when they write their tombstones, however, 
even though you get a very clear sense in their names that they came from somewhere else. I mean, it's a pretty good rule of thumb that everybody in Rome came from somewhere else, really. Um, they're writing the tombstones in Latin. It's a bit of Greek, a bit of Hebrew, but basically they're writing the tombstones in Latin. So if they are speaking you know, Syrian at home, that's not what they're putting. Uh, that's not how they're commemorating themselves. And I think it's... It's, it's a bit more like the American or French model of nationhood than the British. Right. Uh, okay. They're all coming and they're becoming Roman in some way. Um, one, of the, one of the aspects that's come across from uh, having a look at a, a preview of the, the series and, and the piece you've written for the magazine is uh, that it seems to be quite a dangerous place, the city, um, on many levels. So... Was it somewhere where you walked down the street and you were in constant risk of being mugged, or is that slightly over over egging things? I think it's pretty dangerous at night. Um, look, you've got a city with vast disparities of wealth. You know, there's some rich, some very rich, some destitute. Um, you've got no police force and no street lighting. Right, you know, you just put all that into the mix, and it's not hard to think that there's, um, that there's a terribly high, petty crime rate. And I don't know whether it's, you know, big, nasty, organised crime, but it's pickpocketing, it's nicking things. Um, there's the, the case that I talked about in the, in the article in the magazine, you know, the guy who comes and... Um, the, the, the lamp off the counter's pinched. And... There must have been lots of that and lots of self-help, you know, because you know, one thing you can't do is you know, go round to the local neighbourhood bobby and say, I want to report my lost lamp. You know, all you can do is go and punch the guy and get it back. And that, that was the acceptable way of doing things if you wanted, to, wanted I, to get your lamp back? Yeah, I think that's the acceptable way of doing things. And I think, you know, in a way, um, that's been tr that was true of, of most cities in Britain, frankly, up until at least the mid-19th century. And there are some places in the world which is true today. I mean, you know, we, you, know you can be a bit over-Western about this and say, gosh, Rome is really different, you know, no effective police force, no safety nets, no social security, you know, everybody living in these cherry-built, cheek-by-jowl, high-rise blocks. You know, how unbelievably different. Well, it is actually how some people on the planet live now. Um, you know, in, in you know, in certain ways, Rome is a shantytown, third world city. Okay. So, if if I was able to go back there, you you would advise me to stay indoors at night. <laughs> Don't go out at night. And there's a nice. And you, you just get you get occasional glimpses. I mean, we haven't got crime reports for ancient Rome, but you do get occasional glimpses. And one very nice one is when the Emperor Augustus is having some games, putting on some posh games, and he decides to use his soldiers to guard the streets because he thought that people wouldn't go en masse to his games because they'd be worried about having their places broken into while they were out. You know, the kind of, the sort of New Year's Eve burglar's paradise story. And you just get those little hints which give you, I think, an idea that, of the sort of endemicness of largely petty crime. Yeah. And yet, for 
quite a few people, if I, if I read the situation correctly, the, 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 the places they were living in, these tiny little flats in the, in the Inchilai blocks, you wouldn't have wanted to stay there for too long at night because you didn't have any facilities or services, so if you're hungry or needed the loo, you have to go out. So yes. it, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been an option for a lot of these people. Yes. They would I mean, have had to run the, run the risk there. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think, you know, probably you leave the wife. <laughs> God in the place. Um, and you're absolutely right that, that in, in some ways, the place you're living is the street. You're living out. I mean, and it's completely different from how we expect to live. We, we think the people who go and live out are the rich who can go and afford to go to fancy restaurants. Whereas in Rome, the rich are going to be in. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a kind of posh, you know, there's no posh restaurant in Rome. Um, rich live in, poor live out. But they're probably living, you know, the difference, I think, between Augustus and his games problem and the living out and going to the loo out and eating out is that you're probably doing that very locally. You know, you've got, you know, you've got a one or two rooms on the fifth floor of an insular block, but your bar is at the bottom of the insular block or just across the road. Um, so it's, it's probably very local as well as being external. Right. So would that be the most alien element to life that you would, uh, that, you know, a, a modern visitor going back to the past, going to Rome would find, with, you know, the, the idea of sort of living outside for a lot of people? Or would, what, what else would, would just shock and surprise people when they went back there? What's really strange? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, in part, you know, is the dirt, the smell, the outside living, the lack of lavatories. I mean, we would be, I think, puzzled, sh- shocked in part, but also puzzled by Roman slavery. Uh, and we would be shocked and puzzled by the rate of child death. I mean, I think, you know, what would strike you when you were going back to ancient Rome? Most, more than 50% of kids don't make it to the age of 10. And that must colour the world entirely. No, the, you can't expect the baby you have is going to live. Mm. Um, that's, that, I think, for us, would be very odd. Yeah. I mean, so I think slavery is also very odd. I think it doesn't quite fall into the preconceptions that we have of it. So I think we would find it... I mean, we are very much brought up, I think, on a, uh, an American South model of slavery. Very clear ethnic division between masters and slaves, and, and really a binary system of slaves over here, free over there, and not much crossing of that boundary, a bit of crossing, but not much. In Rome, those categories are terribly fluid, and that if you're a slave in a Roman household, the chances are that slavery is only temporary status. Chances are you get free. And one of the, one of the you know, intriguing things and the puzzles about the population of the city of Rome is not only that an awful lot of them are from somewhere else, an awful lot of foreigners, but that an awful lot of them are ex-slaves. Because what is amazing and really extraordinary about Rome is that if you are a slave at Rome, freed by given your freedom by a full Roman citizen, you become a Roman citizen. 
You don't, you don't go into any sort of halfway house limbo. You have full rights of a Roman citizen. And actually, if you look at the, at the tombstones that survive from the city of Rome, more than half of them are actually of, of ex-slaves. So we would be puzzled, I think, not by so much by the existence of slavery, but the kind of fluidity of the categories between free and slave. Yeah, OK. Uh, just in conclusion, um, just uh, you having done all this work looking at these tombstones, uh, has it encouraged you to think of a, a witty tombstone for yourself yet? <laughs> well... Uh, you can't go round all these tombstones without, you know, thinking, oh, God, me one day, I wonder if somebody's going to look at my tombstone, you know. So I think uh, I'm going to say something like, I'm going to have, stop, listen to this, I'm a proud 57-year-old woman with grey hair. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Mary. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That was Professor Mary Beard. Meet the Romans with Mary Beard is on BBC Two on the 19th of April. You can read a feature by Mary on Rome at Night in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale right now. Now we have a short advert. Greg Wolfe, author of Rome and Empire Story, discusses what sustained the Roman Empire. Romans had a story they told about how they marched out each year, usually to deal with somebody else's provocation, and then fought a battle, often despite with some reluctance, won the battle, 
and then stayed where they were. And so their, their empire, rather like the story of the British Empire in the way it was told in the, first, in the 20th century, uh, was a kind of accident that the favour of the gods and a series of incompetent but aggressive neighbours had led Rome to run things. Now, we don't tell the story of Rome like that anymore, but we are interested in what makes the empire stay after the battle's been won. Winning a battle isn't that unusual. In fact, it's not very unusual for Romans to lose battles. But what makes them different from their opponents and their competitors, if you like, is that Rome doesn't seem to be too dismayed by the defeats and capitalise on the success. So what are the, what are the, what are the, what are the structures that sustain empire, that keep it going, that turns it from an aggressive set of conquest into something much more stable. And to look at that, you can't look just at the favour of the gods and the, and the, the phenomenal power of Roman armies uh, or the virtue of the generals. You have to look at the key institutions that somehow became assembled into an empire without anybody consciously planning it. Now, quite a few you could talk about. You could talk about the way the Roman economy operates. You could talk about uh, transport infrastructure, the way information is exchanged. But one of the central ones is, is one that um, has a much more sort of dark tone, and this is the use that slavery had in running an empire. Romans, like lots of their neighbours, had taken captives in war and made them work as slaves in the fields. And they'd also, as their farmers grew bigger and as their businesses got more complicated, had started running them not just through their families, meaning their children and their relatives and their cousins, but also through slaves and ex-slaves. And that became a kind of pattern that could be used for almost anything. Now, there's some institutions that are so central to our society, we're not even conscious of them anymore. Things like the committee or the meeting um, or the telephone conversation. The Romans didn't use any of those things for pretty obvious reasons, but something was so central to their society, they hardly noticed it was slavery. So when one of the generals found himself winning the last civil war, Augustus, and ruling the entire empire, how did he decide to run it? Did he set up a committee? No. Did he set up a department or an office of state? Absolutely not. No such things existed. Were the bureaucracies? Not really in a modern sense. What he did was he got his sons to, to, to lead the armies when he was too old to do so himself, and he got his slaves and ex-slaves to run the imperial economy. There's a great moment in the biography of the first Roman Emperor Augustus, the last chapter of his life. And at that moment, um, his will is read out to the Roman Senate, uh, all the gifts to the people, and, the, and there's a huge list also produced of where all the armies are and how much revenue there is and what money is still owing, which is a bit surprising. You might think the Senate might know these things already, but no, it's all been kept quiet. Augustus has been doing it. And then, it, at the bottom of this document, he added the names of the former slaves, of the ex-slaves in his own household, who could provide further details if anybody wanted to know. And that's amazingly revealing. This entire Roman Empire has been run through its longest reign for 40 years by one man and his household slaves. And they're the only people who know where the money is, where the soldiers are, and all the rest of it. So Roman the Roman Empire is a slave empire in the sense of an empire that depends on the slaves the way we depend on telephones and committees and paperwork just to run itself. Rome, an Empire Story, publishes in May with Oxford University Press and will be available from all good bookshops. Richard Evans, Regis Professor of History at Cambridge University and a particular expert on the Third Reich, has some interesting views on the teaching of history. 
In the light of the debate currently ongoing as to whether history should be made compulsory in schools in England up to the age of 16, as debated in the current issue of BBC History magazine by Chris Skidmore MP and Trevor Fisher, I caught up with him to garner his views. Talking about history teaching, um, the first obvious question is, is, do you think there's anything wrong with history teaching as it stands? Well, um, history teaching is a subject I'm really interested in, partly because I've got two teenage sons who are going through, respectively, A-level and GCSE at the moment, so obviously I follow it quite closely. But increasingly, over the last uh, three or four years, I've become really quite um, annoyed, I guess, by... Uh, what seems to me to be a concerted campaign to completely rubbish the history teaching in our schools, say so it's a total state of crisis, and uh, to argue instead that what you need is more facts and fewer skills taught, and you need to focus on British history as a means of building a British national identity. Uh, now, if you unpick this, you can find there are many different things uh, that are wrong with it. Firstly, the basic premise... Uh, behind a lot of this argument from historians as varied as Dominic Sandbrook or um, Simon Sharma or, or David Starkey and spearheaded by the Education Secretary Michael Gove, uh, the first thing that's wrong is that the statistics on which it rests are phony. So they say that history is declining in the schools, that fewer students have been doing it, only a third of our students take it at GCSE, um, and this is surely very bad. But the fact is that A-level entries have been going up for the last 10 years. GCSE entries are more or less where they are now, um, about around about 30%, uh, where they were when GCSEs were introduced in the mid-1980s. The, the point there is that the GCSE is voluntary for history, um, so that um, students obviously take the range of compulsory subjects. And crucially, they don't have to do history at all after 14 and so, therefore, they'd rather pick a subject which leads to, uh, which which uh, you know will, will leads to a GCSE. So, um, and which they can do, and which is part of a compulsory set. So, it's not actually declining in the schools at all. And yet, um, <coughs> we've got Chris Skidmore, who's a Conservative MP now and a and a historian who's written hist- historical books, um, who's. Who's, 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 who's been in Parliament talking about this and has done had some research done, which uh, to him indicates that there are some schools where history is declining, it isn't taught at all. This is absolutely true. Uh, it's always been the case. Actually, if you go back, there's a um, very interesting book um, done by David Canadine and a research team called The Right Kind of History that came out just a few months ago that traces these Tibets back for a century. And so there was virtually no history teaching in the schools before the Edwardian period. Um, and uh, what Chris Skidmore doesn't do is to show change over time. He doesn't, it's strange for a professional historian, doesn't seem interested in it, um, but he doesn't show that there are more schools now that don't teach history than there were uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, you've got, uh, there's always been some schools where the his- history teaching has been minimal. Um, I think his recipe is absolutely fatal, which is to focus on British history, which uh, students are taught already, but they need to know the wider world, they need to know Europe, because Britain is part of Europe, and they've always been taught European and world and empire history. This is an essential part of the curriculum, and it relates to national identity in the sense that Britain has always had a very open cosmopolitan national identity that's always been open to other countries. And what my fear here is that it will lead to 
a narrow focusing of uh, patriotic British national identity built on myths from Alfred and the Cakes onwards um, <clears throat> that really have uh, are going to lead to a much more um, restricted, much less open and much less liberal kind of national identity. It's funny, there's no other subject which um, politicians regularly make pronouncements about um, other than history. Um, there's even a sense that you get some, I mean, Daily Telegraph's even argued that um, we should go back to history books that were used in schools 50 years, 60, 70 years ago. You wouldn't mm. say it in physics or, yeah. or chemistry. Yeah, our island story was... <clears throat> that, our island story, a patriotic uh, textbook telling kids how great the empire was. Well, um, you know, we need a more critical attitude towards the empire to um, have a more sophisticated kind of national identity in the present, I think. So I think there are, you know, there's a, the, the whole charge led by Chris Skidmore and others against history in the schools is, is extremely exaggerated. And uh, above all, of course, if there is any kind of decline with our problems, it's not, the not caused by the national curriculum. National curriculum covers the years up to the age of 14. And I've looked at it very carefully, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. It combines local... Uh, regional, national, European and international history and seems to be just about the right measure. There's a long strand of chronological history from 1066 up to very close to the present that runs all the way through it. So the complaints of the critics that chronology is not ta taught anymore, that students don't get a sense of the sweep of history, are entirely misplaced, it seems to me. They simply haven't read the national curriculum. The recent uh, Ofsted report on history from just a few months ago again, makes these points that, that history is flourishing in the schools and, and students actually enjoy it. They say it's a, they, it's a very enjoyable subject. Uh, and the teaching of skills is important, critical skills based on the critical reading of documents, because that's what equips students to be critical, concerned uh, citizens in the in the adult world, you know, if you can read a, a document critically and ask the questions, who wrote it and why, what's it trying to say, uh, you can ask the same things of your newspaper when you read it as an adult. So the curriculum's not to blame. And there are other factors to blame. Um, league tables in schools, for example, are particularly important. They're all the focus on, um, and here I'm getting to some of the problems, I think, the focus on uh, literacy and numeracy in the primary schools has driven history right down into a corner in primary schools until we get onto the national curriculum. Um, and that's not right. And uh, history, and here I do uh, share Chris Kidmore's views, history really should be compulsory to the age of 16. It should be a compulsory GCSE. Um, it's, uh, uh, and what, what you need to do, however, is simply to stretch out the national curriculum from 14 to 16, you don't need to change it at all. Because originally it was designed to go to 16, and then um, uh, Ken, Ken Clark in um, uh, uh, Mrs Thatcher's government then uh, pushed it back to 14. So it packs too much into too short a space of time, things get left out, and that is the problem. So what would have to give <clears throat> to make space for that, or is that not your concern? Well, I would say religious studies, or it could be incorporated into it, but I realise a lot of institutional pressures against that. Um, and also, on top of that, of course, I do think that it's important to make languages compulsory up to 16. It was a disastrous um, move for the last Labour government to abolish a requirement to study a language mm. up to 16. You've, you've written for us before about that, about the, about the, the, the difficulty you, you see in students coming up to Cambridge who 
haven't got language skills and aren't able to uh, to, to examine yeah. foreign language documents. Absolutely. So is, is that a bigger issue than, than any of the other it's, matters? It's, it's another. It's an issue of a different kind. I wouldn't say it's bigger, but uh, I mean, in Cambridge we've tried to uh, deal with that by putting on first-year courses in, in French and German history using French and German documents, respectively, combined with language teaching, um, and they've been fairly successful, I think. I mean, one of my concerns here is that the... Um, you know, I belong to a generation of historians in Britain who I think have um, had an enormous influence in the world. Um, you can, uh, you know, it sounds like boasting, but I think we're the best historians in the world. And that's partly because we all read foreign languages, or most of us do, and we write about um, other countries. In my book, Cosmopolitan Islanders, published a couple of years ago, I go into this in some some detail. But if you think of the best-known British historians, think of Paul Preston's huge influence in Spain, which writes about Spain, or Dennis Max Smith in Italy, or Geoffrey Hosking, Robert Service in, uh, in Russia, or um, Ian Kershaw in Germany, <clears throat> or Theodore Zeldin, Robert Gilday in France. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. We had to learn foreign languages in order to get into Oxford. In my day, as a student, you had to have Latin and one other foreign language to read history. You couldn't, you, they wouldn't let you in if you didn't have those two. And do you see that, that, That's all that being lost? Yeah. Though, so, um, I mean, there are pluses and minuses about it, but it's an undeniable fact that, you know, 30 years ago, the great majority of people teaching German history at universities in this country were British, now they're German. Uh, they bring a different perspective, they have an interesting mix of um, sort of British and German approaches to history. Um, uh, but it, it remains the case that there are now relatively few British postgraduates who study German history, and the same is true of other, other kinds of foreign history involving um, a, a language that's not, not English, too. Okay. Taking the, the, the argument back to the point about whether history should be compulsory up to 16 um, in England, that's mm. where this, this discussion relates to, um, the counter-argument, and, and an argument which has been put in the pages of BBC History magazine this month, is that you, that is simply coercion and that you end up with disillusioned students who don't want to study history beyond 14 and but are just forced into it and thus become disillusioned and, and, and turned off the topic. The evidence is the contrary, that the questionnaires have, um, uh, and interviews with uh, students who've not done it up to 16 say that they wish they could have done it but um, their schools didn't uh, allow it or they had to focus on GCSEs or on the compulsory subjects. Um, many more of them say they enjoyed it up to 14 than actually carry on afterwards. So how, how, do, how do you make history exciting and interesting <coughs> students then? What would be your, your solution to that, to, to, to make history alive as a subject for, for, for young people? Well, uh, you, um, first of all, of course, it is alive for most young, young people. It is, as the Austin Reports says, well taught in the schools. By and large, there's a minority of poor teachers and poor schools, as there are everywhere, but it's only a minority. Um, I think... The way to teach it well is uh, you have to enthuse the students and you have to do exciting subjects. And you need to do a variety of different subjects, so not just plodding through British history from start to finish, which will surely bore them rigid, but combine the kind of spine of British narrative history in the national curriculum, especially if it goes up to 16, with uh, a look at other histories, other countries, other events, exciting subjects, such as students love doing at the moment, which is uh, things like Stalin, Hitler, American Civil War, a lot of very popular subjects there. 
um, looking at other, other centuries, other civilizations, and then also teaching students the skills, getting them alive to the problems in evaluating sources, being able to argue um, uh, about them, and um, conveying the idea to students that historians actually disagree. There's different viewpoints about every every issue. I mean, you make a th big thing of this in your magazine, of course, because controversy is the lifeblood of history. Um, it, it's got better in the schools. When I started teaching um, more years ago than I care to admit, um, students would come up with an idea that history was facts, indisputable facts. There's no argument about them at all. And I'm very much afraid some of the critics of the curriculum want to go back to that kind of rigid, uncritical point of view. Uh, now I think students are more alive to the fact that historians do disagree, but there needs to be more of that. Mm. Um, and I think one problem is um, it's not that there's, as the critics are always saying, with I think a tinge of Euroscepticism, there's too much Nazism in the curriculum. I mean, I would say there isn't because I work on Nazi Germany, obviously, <laughs> but, but still, it's that it gets repeated. I think it's very important to teach the Second World War, National Socialism, um, and the terrible things that happened in Europe in the, the first half of the last century. But it gets repeated. <clears throat> they, they do it at GCSE and they do it at A-level if they want to. And my oldest son has said, um, well, you know, he did GCSE uh, history Thank God he got an A star, otherwise life would have been <laughs> difficult. Um, but he did the Second World War and Nazism and so on. He just said, Dad, I'm not going to do that in, in A level. You know, apart from having to read your books, he said, um, it's, uh, it's too much doing it again. I'll do Tudors and Stuarts. So I think there needs to be, it's, it's not the National Curriculum, of course, it's the examination boards, but they need to get their act together and make sure there's, there's, there's no repetition. There's, that's a recipe for boredom, I think, amongst students. In conclusion, what... Uh what are the things that people should definitely come away uh, from school knowing about history, would you say? Are there any things that you would say that everyone ought to have some sort of handle on? You mean factual knowledge? I mean, one of the problems I, I problem is that when it comes down to it, uh, everyone who complains that students don't know anything when they come, come out of school or don't know enough about history, they always go back to what I call the patriotic narrative of British History. For some reason, it always seems to focus on uh, who led the British to victory in the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, now, my point is that, uh, of course, the Duke of Wellington, uh, first of all, did not lead the British. Most of his troops were not British at all. They were Dutch and others. And secondly, it's actually the Germans who won the Battle of Waterloo. He managed, uh, Wellington managed to hold off Napoleon, but he didn't get a victory. It's only when Blucher and the Prussians arrived that the victory uh, came and this, that's it's just a simple example of I think how um, students need to question question these so-called facts of the patriotic narrative and see what underlies them and then they can start asking well why do so many people think that the British won the Waterloo, Waterloo uh, uh, Battle of Waterloo um, so what's I wouldn't presume to say that students should have a core of knowledge when they come away because history is such a huge varied and diverse um, subjects. Uh, I'd rather put the stress on coming away with skills and abilities they've learned in doing history and hopefully also uh, an interest in history in later life. It's one of the paradoxes <coughs> uh, that uh, I think is something to be said for, um, pointed out by the critics, that history is enormously popular in the world. Television programmes, Magazines like BBC History magazine with circulation of 70,000. Mm. Um, uh, 
millions of people watch David Starkey and Neil Ferguson, Simon Sharma on, on, on television. History books sell incredibly well in the shops. Um, and uh, there's this all-consuming interest. And uh, that kind of interest is something that ought to be given to you for life by learning history in the schools. Um, the critics say that it's not. Uh, that history in the school somehow is in a dire state. But I think the evidence of popularity of history among adults is a sure sign that they're getting a taste for it in school. That was Richard Evans, Regis Professor of History at Cambridge University. His book, Cosmopolitan Islanders, British Historians in the European Continent, is published by Cambridge University Press. You can read the feature on the merits or otherwise of the compulsory teaching of history up to 16 between Chris Skidmore and Trevor Fisher in the current issue of BBC History magazine. So that's your lot. Next week we'll be considering the Norman Conquest and the concept of public history. But in the meantime, take a look at our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. Plus don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. <laughs>